Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to Awaken. My name is Kathy Solomon. I'm the director of Community Life. We're so glad that you're here to enter this time of worship. If you're new, we extend a special welcome to you. If you could let us know that you're here by going to our website, clicking on the I'm new button, we'll get in contact with you and invite you to have a conversation to um, hear more about you, what's drawn you here, and um, hear your questions that you have about us as well. And for those of you who are just the normal part of our community, I'm so glad you're here with us. We've planned a time to come together and worship and just be thoughtful that while you are wherever you are, um, driving in your, at home in your living room and another room that we're gathering here together. So as we come and start this time together, I'd like to offer a call to worship. This is a paraphrase from Psalm 86. No one is like you, O mighty one. All of creation belongs to you. All the nations are under your authority and one day, They will acknowledge and reverence you. They will give praise to your sacred name, for you are great. We are awed by the wonder of your world. You alone are the Most High.
hope you are doing great. Well, last week we talked about the egg. I would love to see, I've seen a couple of your eggs. I would love to see more, how beautiful you made them. Remember we talked about how the egg is a symbol of new life at Easter time. And we talked about how that new life comes through Jesus, right? Through his death and resurrection. And this week we're beginning week five of Lent. One more week before Holy Week. And a reminder that next week we're gonna be together on Zoom for Palm Sunday. So I hope you're there. We're gonna have a great kids time as well. So join us next week on Zoom at 11 o'clock. So for this week, we are talking about bread. Who loves bread? I don't know many kids that don't like bread. What is your favorite kind of bread? And how many of you have made bread? Many of us probably just buy bread from the grocery store, which is nice and easy. Maybe not quite as delicious, but for those of you who have made bread, you know how much work goes into that, how much time and all the ingredients and the time that it takes between mixing certain ingredients. While I was preparing today, not even planned, my son Cullen was making bread. It was so cool to watch his process and to have him wait. He would go get to do something else while he waited hours for it to raise, hours for it to sit. And then we got to bake it and it came out of the oven after I left, but I'm sure it is beautiful. I wanted to bring it today just to show you. You all get a chance to make bread too. In your box, there is a bag with the yeast in there and this card for directions on how to make bread in a bag. A little easier, but still more work than buying it at the grocery store. We're gonna talk a little bit more about bread, even though you're also gonna talk at home with your family. I want you to get your Bibles out if you have them and open up to John 6, 35. John 6, 35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever comes to me will never go thirsty. Jesus spoke these words during the time of Passover. Passover is a celebration of God leading the Israelites out of Egypt, which is in the Old Testament. Passover continues to be a time of celebration even now. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, God provided them a form of bread. Do you guys remember what that is? If you know, tell your family. What did God provide the Israelites in the wilderness? If you said manna, you are right, manna. To the Israelites, manna was amazing. They didn't have to work, they didn't have to grind the flour, they didn't have to do any of the prep work to make the bread. God just gave it. All they had to do for this manna was simply pick it up and eat it. Why do you think I share that with you? What do Jesus's words mean when he says, I am the bread of life? Think about what bread does for us. It satisfies our hunger, right, physically. The Israelites needed the manna to survive. What does Jesus do for us? Well, he loves us unconditionally. And do we have to work to receive the love of Jesus Christ? No, we do not. Do we have to struggle to be good enough for Jesus? Nope, we don't. I believe this is what Jesus is saying when he says he is the bread of life. He is enough. Just as bread fills our tummies, the love of Jesus fills our souls. 
He gives us love without any work or any rules to follow. He is enough and he loves us no matter what. His love for us and our love for him connect us to God. And God loves you and God sees you and God knows you. I believe that to be loved is the greatest gift of all. And to be loved no matter what, that's just amazing. Thank you, Jesus. So like I said, week five, you guys can keep on going and read a little bit more about bread. Did you know that bread is mentioned at least 38 times in the Bible? I listed a few of those verses on your card, and I want you to take time today as a family to look those up and talk about different ways that you maybe wonder or maybe what you're curious about in how bread is related to Jesus and how bread is used in the Bible in different scriptures. In Jesus Christ, I want you to remember that we find freedom to be who he created us to be and to live a life of love, being loved and giving love. Jesus is our ultimate example of loving God and loving others. I'm going to read a story from this Bible. It's called Children of God Storybook Bible by Desmond Tutu. And it is about Jesus being a servant. Jesus becomes a servant. Now, this takes place at the Last Supper, which is celebrated through our Lent, through our Lent journey. So that happens usually during Holy Week. Next week is kind of when it was in Bible time, right before um, we celebrate Easter. I'm just going to go ahead and read this. Jesus becomes a servant, and it's from John 13. Jesus and the disciples gathered in Jerusalem. Their feet were dirty from walking the dusty roads, telling people about God's dream. The disciples started arguing over which one of them was the greatest. Jesus got up and tied a towel around his waist. He took a basin of water and began to wash the feet of his friends and dry them on the towel. Jesus' friends were shocked. That is a servant's job, they shouted. But Jesus quietly continued washing their feet. When it was Peter's turn, he jumped up. Master, you will never wash my feet. Then you cannot be my disciple, said Jesus. Lord, cried Peter, wash my feet, my hands, my head, all of me. And Jesus had finished washing their feet. He took off the towel and sat down again. Do you understand what I have done? He asked. You call me Lord and teacher, but I have washed your feet like a servant. You must follow my example. The leader is the servant of all. You must be as servants to each other. No one is more important than anyone else. I want you to love one another the way I love you. Jesus is our ultimate example of loving God and loving others. God's love for us is shown over and over, but the death and resurrection of Jesus is the greatest example of love, the ultimate sacrifice. In this story, we're reminded how Jesus taught us to love God and how to love others. His love shines through us when we choose to believe in that love and when we choose to accept that love. It's a little bit like when the Israelites had to pick up the manna that God provided. All they had to do was to pick up the manna, and it would satisfy their hunger. We just need to say yes to Jesus' love for us 
and we will be filled with that love. It's that easy. Peter had to accept Jesus washing his feet, even though it didn't seem right to have the leader act as a servant. But Jesus tells us to serve each other. The greatest example of Jesus' serving us is his sacrifice on the cross. This is the ultimate way of knowing Jesus' love. And that love continues to shine through you as you love others and care for others and serve others. And we remember that no one is more important than anyone else. This week, thinking about that, I want you to think about someone you love. In our letter, remember we've been writing letters as our challenge during Lent. We've written a few letters already. This week's letter is to someone you love. Why do you love this person? What do you want to tell them? How much you love them and why you love them? I want you to write that in a letter because remember your words matter. And for someone to hear how much you love them will mean so much to them. So take some time this week and write a letter to someone or maybe many people that you love, whatever you have time for. And then remember to have so much fun making bread in a bag. I can't wait to see pictures of that. And also this week's craft is to paint or color around this cross, get it really colorful, and then peel that tape off. And it's gonna be a beautiful piece of art to hang up before we celebrate Easter. Have a great week. Thanks, Mandy. Let's sing the song of blessing over our kids. May God give you eyes to see all that is good, all that is good. The courage for anything. May you be strong, may you be strong. May God My name is Micah. Welcome to Awaken. Glad you're here. I was telling somebody the other day that uh, COVID and this whole bit has taught us a lot of things, but one of the things it's taught me is that I can preach from a stool. I never thought I could do that. <laughs> I always, whenever I've tried, I always end up standing up, but I can't. So turns out you can do hard things. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, hard things. It's week five of Lent. By the time you're listening to this, you're like almost there. So if you've given something up for Lent, the end is almost near. Um, so you can do hard things too. Good job. Um, but yeah, this, this, this Lenten journey, every spring, the church has taken this journey towards uh, preparing ourselves for something that we know is going to happen. We slow down when winter comes to an end, although right now it's snowing outside, so it's a bit ironic. Uh, buds begin to appear on trees. Life looks like it's right around the corner. 
uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but early on in church history, um, Lent was all about baptism. So at Ash Wednesday, uh, the, the, those who would be soon to be baptized on Easter would come and proclaim with the imposition of ashes this, the death of something. And then Lent was this long preparation period. And the whole church calendar actually pointed towards and sort of culminated around, it, it rose to the Easter vigil where uh, folks in the community would get baptized. I think maybe we should try that next year. I've talked about that before. I gotta stop talking about it, start doing it. Um, but either way, that, that, was, that is true. Um, I don't know if you knew that or not, which got me thinking about my baptism. I was in college. Uh, I was like 20 years old. Um, at the time, Laura was my girlfriend. She was the only one there who, who witnessed this, this event, but it was at a little church called TNL, which stood for Tuesday Night Live. You know, back in the Gen X church days, a church within a church. Um, don't worry, everybody, they've changed the name. It's now the Next Level Church, um, <laughs> which is far better. But Trevor Braun, he was the pastor who baptized me, and I was just looking on my Facebook page. I wrote him a letter a while back, and I said, you know what, thanks. I appreciate that moment. It was a, it was a pivotal moment in my life, and you were there for it. Um, so, oh yeah, letters. The, the power of a letter. This is a series that we're doing, and we've, written, we've looked at a number of different letters because letters are, well, powerful. They last, if you want them to last. Um, I've, I've actually burned a few letters that I didn't want to last, but the ones I wanted to last, I've kept in a box. So letters last, they take time. You have to like write them. I've written a couple. I recently wrote a letter to M Melvin Carter, Mayor Melvin Carter. It's a Central High School graduate, if you didn't know that, my alma mater. Introducing myself to him. But um, yeah, letters, they take time. You gotta sit down to write them. Uh, everything moves so fast, but letters, they move slowly. I'm still waiting for the response to one letter, hoping, you know, every day at the mail. I'm hoping I get a letter back. So today we're going to look at a letter. Uh, actually, it's a correspondence between Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These are two German Christians. They lived in, um, well, pre-World War II, during World War II, in Germany, during the rise of Hitler and the Third Reich. And I want to look at this exchange between these two because... I believe uh, it can, if we let it, open our eyes and remind us of what happens when nationalism, um, racist ideas, and faith actually all get merged together. Um, so let me set the stage. This is the fall of 1933. Hitler and the Third Reich is gaining power and momentum. One of the ways that they've done this is by essentially um, merging the Protestant Christian church with the state, with the Nazi state. Uh, Ludwig Muller was Hitler's appointment for the Reich Bishop of the German Evangelical Church. So the, the goal was to subordinate Christianity to the state, essentially. <clears throat> um, the, the state had already adopted what was called, known as the Aryan Paragraph or the Aryan Clause, which was this ridiculous statement that the Aryan race was this, the most superior race of all. and. Um, and, and the church was sort of falling in line. And what came from that was what was called the church law relating to the legal position of clergy in the church office, which basically meant that they limited ordination of, uh, and licensure of, of pastors in the church to those who would pledge allegiance to the Nazi state and who were of the Aryan race. So Barton Bonhoeffer are corresponding back and forth between one another because they're realizing, they're recognizing the danger of nationalism and racist ideas and faith all coming together in this moment. 
And so what follows is an interaction between those two. So this is Bonhoeffer to Bart, and he says this. In your booklet, you said that where a church adopted the Arian Clause, it would cease to be a Christian church. A considerable number of pastors here would agree with you in this view. Now, the expected has happened. And I am therefore asking you on behalf of many friends, pastors, and students to let us know whether you feel that it is possible either to remain in a church which has ceased to be the Christian church or to continue to exercise ministry which has become privilege for Arians. We have in the first place drawn up a declaration in which in which we wish to inform church authorities that the, with the Arian Clause, the evangelical church has cut itself off from the Church of Christ. This is Bonhoeffer to Bart. So Bart, in his response, agrees with Bonhoeffer. He says that the church has reached a place that he calls a status confessionist, which is basically a point at which the church will, must confess out loud uh, their, their, their faith against and, and in opposition to the error of the church that this would become necessary. And so Bart responds in this way. And keep in mind, Bart is one of the most verbose theologians ever. He's very hard to read, so stick with me. He writes this. That will first of all mean this. The church, that the church authorities or the supposed or majority of church members represented by them must be told directly and at the same time publicly here you are no longer the Church of Christ. And it is clear that this protest cannot be made just once. It must go on and on until the scandal is done away with or until the church answers by evicting or muzzling those who protest. So the step you had in mind seems to be the right one to begin with. <laughs> so those are, that's our letters. Um, pray with me and we'll, we'll dive in here. God, this morning we ask for your blessing, for your guidance, your wisdom, your vision. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with the preacher, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and would build the church up. I pray in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit and the church said together, amen. I, I could like imagine you saying that back to me here. Um, now, so that's the, that's the correspondence between Barton Bonhoeffer. Now, history reminds us, tells us, that the confessing church, which Barton Bonhoeffer both played a role in, failed to do what they agreed was necessary, which was in, in some level of, uh, in, in, in a manner of consequence, to stand up against um, and speak prophetically to the melding of Christianity and nationalism, especially with this ridiculous and diabolical racial uh, um, category added to it. So the question we now ask looking back is how is that possible? Like how did they, when the stakes were so high, how did they fail to like speak out against this thing that they knew was so diabolical, so awful? One um, scholar, Jeremy Begbie from Duke Divinity School writes this. He says, an enormously significant factor was that the churches were theologically ill-equipped and unprepared to come to grips with the immense power of Nazi ideology and the profound issues it raised for the life and witness of the church. Today in the time we have remaining, using Bart and Bonhoeffer and their uniquely Aryan German Christian reality as a starting point, I wanna explore our unique white American Christian reality. And hopefully I wanna point out the obvious and maybe some of the more subtle 
ways that white Christian nationalism is an evil that we must denounce and speak out against. It may seem obvious, but it needs to be said out loud. Um, I signed something the other day to this effect, and, and I posted it on our like ministerium webpage, and I said, I hope more covenant pastors would sign this. And one of my colleagues is like, I don't get it. Like, what's the point in signing that? Like, so you feel better about yourself? No, because it's important that the church of Jesus states that this is evil and we stand against it. And when we don't, we look back in history and we say, how could they be so quiet? How could they not say anything? So here we are. This is what I want to do today. Um, because, friends, as, as one of the pastors here, I, I do not want you to be theologically ill-equipped or unprepared in this matter. So, here we go. Jesus stands before Pilate during his trial, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds in John 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my friends would come and they'd basically wipe you all out. But... No, my kingdom is from another place. The question is, do we believe him? Do we believe Jesus when he says that the kingdom he's come to establish, the rule and reign that he's wanting to bring, is not of this world? Paul in Philippians says that we Christians are citizens of heaven. The writer in 1 Peter 2, some would argue Paul, some would argue somebody else, we are addressed as the church as aliens and temporary residents of this world. The question is, do we believe them? Do we believe that our citizenship, our allegiance, what we align with is of this world or not of this world? This is the question at stake. So let's do that. Let's explore these three elements of nationalism, faith, and race, and then we'll make a few observations, all right? So first, nationalism. By definition, nationalism is simply loyalty and devotion to a nation. It goes on and says, especially a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on or promotion of its cultural interest or its culture and interest as opposed to another or those of other nations. Um, you can see how this, this isn't just like, oh, I like the country I live in. Nationalism is the pr giving primacy or supremacy to your particular nation, its culture, its interests, its values, its way of life, as opposed to another nation or place. Um, you can see how this might become problematic and possibly even dangerous, especially when you add power and authority and military behind it. Um, nationalism is patriotism taken to a whole nother level. Patriotism, you know, pride in love of, even commitment to one's own country, not necessarily bad. Actually, I, I hope that people are proud of the place that they live in and the country that they come from, that they take pride in it, that they have some level of commitment to it. Um, it would be sad if one didn't. But nationalism is the belief that your country, its people, its ideas, its traits are better than those of another country. And nationalism generally fuels specifically American exceptionalism. That this project called America is unique and inherently different and better than other countries based on any number of things, right? We say liberty, equality before the law, individual responsibility, um, representative democracy, uh, fair market or, or um, economics. Um, what's that called? Um, free market economics. It's fascinating to me if you listen to people who are in politics, as of late, especially just in the wake of the election, 
How many times you heard politicians say, like from a pulpit, with the watching world, watching and listening, America is the greatest country the world has ever known. That's really arrogant. You might, you might believe that's true, but there's a way in which you can hold that belief that doesn't make you a buttwad. Sorry if the kids are still watching. I could have said something far worse. <laughs> but I, they say it all the time. If you listen to our political candidates and people who, who are actually elected, they say this all the time, that America is the greatest country that the world has ever known. And, it, and they say it all the time as if they know that there's a whole bunch of people out there who agree with them. So this is nationalism, right? Uh, this belief that one nation, our nation in particular, is superior or better than other nations. That was present in Germany in World War II, and it's certainly present in America and in our history. Now, you have nationalism. Now couple that with Christianity. Daniel Hill, who wrote the book White Awake, has this great Instagram post where he's trying to help people understand like the connections between these three ideas, and he writes this. He says, America's form of nationalism is historically unique because its origins are rooted in the Christian story or the God of Christianity, right? Maybe you've heard this phrase, manifest destiny, this idea that the settlers of America's colonies and the American project was destined and blessed by God. This, this, is, um, this comes from, in the 1400s, the papal bulls that the Catholic Church issued, which essentially allowed settlers to claim imminent domain over anything and any place that they set foot on, also known as the doctrine of discovery. Um, now, there's a debate as to like how present was Manifest Destiny in the original American settlers, and you can debate that fine, but it's obvious that looking back, this has become one of the dominant ways in which people in America talk about and explain our history. How else could we have won the Revolutionary War? How else could there be so much prosperity and wealth other than God's blessing, Manifest Destiny? It's gotta be that God's on our side. God bless America. In fact, take it further. There has developed among Christians, and I'm not even joking on this. This is like real, it's out there. Christians who believe that America and its aim is a new covenant that God has made on the planet with us. So think about Israel and the old covenant that God made with the Jewish people. They leave Exodus, they wander in the desert, they get led to the promised land and they enter the promised land where all these Canaanites are. They get driven out and they then live. God gives them victory. They then live in the promised land to steward its resources and show the world what it looks like to be blessed and to live in relationship with God. Just fast forward that and place it over American history. The settlers are uh, chosen and blessed by God. They're the new Israel. We're the new Israel uh, whom God has given us victory. Oh, the promised land, uh, the indigenous people who live here, they're the Canaanites whom God gives us victory over. Uh, and we can settle here and, and steward the resources of this land. Which is why some Christians get so bent out of shape of covenant-breaking ideas or covenant-breaking choices, like when we take prayer out of school or abortion or gay marriage, right? Because if we go down that road, then God won't bless America anymore and we'll be exiled just like, just, we'll be like going to Babylon. <laughs> it's not even funny, but I don't know what else to do but laugh. But this is real, and there are pastors out there who are saying that this is true, and this is how we should read the Bible. Nationalism 
and Christianity get fused together, right? And you can see how it happens in Germany, and you can see how it's happened in America. And in both cases, though slightly different, in Germany it was actually based on American history, but add to that race and white supremacy. White supremacy, of course, is the evil idea that distorts the image of God in all, every human that bears that image. And then based on racial categories that people in power make, it assigns value and superiority to whiteness and inferiority to blackness. Further, it then equates what's normal and standard as white, and any, anything else is a deviation from that or judged in its proximity to whiteness. Daniel Hill writes this. In the American context, nationalism and white supremacy have always been fused together. As a result, the superiority assigned to whiteness through white supremacy and the superiority assigned to America through nationalism have become so intertwined that they cannot be pulled apart. I would add to that the troubling belief and conviction that America's exceptionalism, which of course is informed by white supremacy, is rooted in the God of Christianity. Everybody take a deep breath. I was telling the folks who were here tonight, if I haven't scared away a few people, this one might do it. But here's why I'm talking about this. I don't know about you, but lately I've asked questions and my friends have asked questions like, how did we get here? Um, Or how could this have happened? Or how could normally sane, level-headed individuals now believe fill in the blank? or just cut straight to it. How on earth could we get to the place where mostly white, mostly Christian people storm the Capitol and incite and then carry out violence in the name of the God of Christianity? Now you might say, listen, Mike, all those people weren't there and they weren't all rioters. Fine, many of them were. They weren't all white. You're right, most of them were. And I would argue, I didn't see any signs talking about Allah or Zoroastrianism or any number of other religions. The signs that were there were explicitly Christian. So how, how, how could this happen? When we follow this Jesus who is against violence, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, even unto, like, how is this possible? And I would just submit to you these three ideas. Nationalism, Racial, white supremacy, and Christianity. When these three things get mixed together, strange fruit is born, as Billie Holiday once famously sang. And so I want to pause today because it's really important for us to remember. There's a word called sankofa, uh, and I'm pretty sure it's a Swahili word, and it means to remember so that you can go forward. Friends, it, for, for us... For this church, in this context, it's so important that we never forget that our history is rooted in the merging of Christianity and white supremacy and nationalism. Like, just, like I said this earlier, but Hitler got the idea from us and our history. So we have to talk about this because if we don't, bad and evil things continue to happen. 
when those three things get merged together. Bart and Bonhoeffer agreed that the Church of Jesus ceased to be the Church of Jesus when it didn't stand up against this idea. When German nationalism and Christianity and racism basically come together. And I believe it's important for me as a pastor, for us as a church, and for you as an individual follower of Jesus to denounce nationalism and American exceptionalism, especially when it's fused with racist ideas and it creeps its way into the church. A few observations as we close about Christian American nationalism. Number one, Christian nationalism says that the future of the church is dependent on the future of the state. Let me say that again. Christian nationalism, when we merge Christian faith and our state, Christian nationalism, it says that the future of the church depends on the future of the state. And for many people, the church's destiny then is wrapped up in the success or failure of the United States of America. Why is it that in some places it feels like love of, love of God is equal to or the same as love of country? Because it is for them. And I love this quote by a guy named Jason Meyer who writes for the Institute for Pastor Theologians. Evidently, there aren't very many of them, so we have to make an institute for them. The mission of the church is not to make America great, but to make Christ known. Yes, Jesus saves, but he saves through a cross, not a president or a power play on the Capitol. The strategy of the early church was not to get a ruler in power or the right ruler in power. They made the stupendous claim that he already is. Jesus is risen and ascended to the right hand of God who sits on the throne. This is why Jesus can say, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> and why the author of Hebrews says we're strangers and aliens. Because those of us who follow Jesus are citizens of another kingdom and our allegiance is to it. Is it important to participate in the democratic process? Yes, of course. If you listen to me long enough, you know that I would say that's true. Is it important that who's in, who's in the office and, and what their policies are? Absolutely, they affect us. And the future of the church is not dependent on the future of the United States of America. Come on, Micah, give me an amen. Number two, Christian nationalism says that America is uniquely blessed by God. I don't know if you know this, but there is no verse in the Bible that says that. It's not true. People say like, oh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. My people will humble themselves and, <laughs> and pray, I will hear from heaven and I will hear their land, heal their land. Those are both promises to Israel from the Old Testament. They have nothing to do with America. Also, in the story of the Bible, a people called Israel, God, that God called, named Israel, which is rooted in ethnic identity, is replaced by a global movement called the church where every tribe, every tongue, every knee will bow. This is why Paul can say there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, because it's beyond that. It's not about ethnicity anymore. The idea that America has some kind of special relationship with God is unbiblical and I would argue rooted in male ego and nothing more.
You may think America is wonderful. Fine, that's great. You may love America for all kinds of different reasons. Fine, awesome. You may be grateful to the people who have served on our behalf to afford de democratic freedoms. Beautiful, good, I say amen to those things. But America is not uniquely blessed by God any more than Croatia is. <sighs> Number three, white Christian nationalism is a category of evil that is demonic and oppressive. If I can say anything here, friends, it's a word of warning and caution. In the spirit of no booze for Lent, I want some sobriety around here. We, those who follow Jesus in America, can never forget the way in which American history unfolded. Like I said, the Germans got their cues. Hitler got his cues from our history. We can't forget that history and how it unfolded. Tethered to the God of Christianity and, and how our history was, how it unfolded, how it was tethered to the God of Christianity and was influenced by the oppressive and demonic racist ideas of white supremacy. When we forget those things, when we, when we fail to speak them out loud, awful and horrible things happen. You remember after 9-11, there was this like hashtag campaign. I don't even know if there were hashtags back then. Probably not. Twitter might not even have been in existence. But if it was, the hashtag would have been never forget. Why? Because we don't want to forget this moment in our history where this awful thing happened and how it shaped and formed and informed our civic life together. So we say, never forget 9-11 and the people who died and those who, the heroes that emerged, right? Never forget. I would suggest we cannot, who, in 2021, American Christians, white American Christians, have to keep saying this out loud, cannot forget that our history is informed by these things. Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer corresponded about the appropriate response of the Church of Jesus when it became clear that German nationalism and racist ideas had merged and made their way into the Christian church. And they said that when it does, that church ceases to be the Church of Jesus Christ. And I would simply agree. They deemed the proper response was to call out the Church of Jesus and those who represented it and say, you are no longer the Church of Jesus insofar as you allow those things to exist in your midst. This morning it felt appropriate for us to pause, to spend a little time reflecting on this moment, certainly because of the events of our, the past few months in our life, but also to remember that these ideas that Bonhoeffer and Barth were wrestling with in 1933 are 400 years old in our country. And in order for us to live into the call of Jesus and this way of being human in the world, I'm going to simply suggest we can't forget. We have to allow those things to inform how we show up and how we attempt to remain faithful to the call of Jesus, who says, my kingdom is not of this world. These things that you live, the civic life that you have, it's important and you should be engaged in it. And you have one allegiance. You bow a knee to one kingdom and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which dies for its enemies, which loves sacrificially, which always forgives, always offers hope, always lifts up, 
And when we find these ideas in our midst, around us, in our culture, or even when they make the, seep their way into the church, the church can stand with its feet on the ground, its shoulders square, and say, that is not of Christ. That is all I have for you today. Uh, I hope and pray that something that I have said is of God. I believe that it is. I worked long and hard on it, but I don't assume that I always get it right. So I'm going to offer a moment of silence. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to offer a moment of silence for you to consider the things that I've said, the veracity of any of them, and whether or not they are worthy of our consideration as a church. Um, before I do that, I've invited you to, to write letters each week. And so this week, I'm going to invite you, this is a big one, I'm going to invite you to write a letter to someone that you love, but whom you might disagree with. And I'll let you parse that out. So pray with me. God who is made fully known in Jesus, who walked this earth, taught, loved, welcomed, made the table bigger for. It's my hope and prayer that in the next few moments of silence that anything that I have said that is not of you would be forgotten from the minds and hearts of my friends and the annals of history. Also, that if there's anything I've said that is true and congruent with who you are in your character and Jesus' teachings, that it would remain, that it would land deep in our hearts, and that it would challenge us to think deeply and critically about what it means to be Christians, what it means to be people of the way. Not, not even that we, that we declare ourselves Christians, but May it be that the world says they must be Christians because of the way they love and act in the world. So Holy Spirit, convict where conviction is needed. Encourage where encouragement is needed. Give light where there is uncertainty and darkness and unknowing. Lead us to what is true, right, and beautiful, I pray. sing a song together that's probably new to um, many of us listening, most of us listening, but it's a really simple 
And uh, knowing what Micah was going to talk about today, I thought it might be good to um, end with something that puts us in a posture of learning, of being taught, um, especially about things that are um, pretty hard to learn, (laughs) and a posture of trusting that there is a higher way. Um, So sing along with me when you can. good friend named Dominique who actually spoke here a while back. Dominique once said, Micah, make sure that what you can't say today is not the same thing that you can't say a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Said differently, help move people along. Um, And I'm grateful that this is a church where um, if I had preached this sermon 10 years ago, I don't think Awaken would have lasted because I think a lot of people would have left. But what I couldn't say 10 years ago, I think I can say today. And I'm open to critique. I'm open to your thoughts, your honest feedback. But I don't know that there's, I've thought about this and I've prayed about this and I don't know that I Yeah, I'll stop there. I'm open. Um, So, you don't always have to agree with the preacher. Um, However, 
this meal, bread and wine, has been around for a while. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is a new covenant written in my blood, which will expand this thing called the people of God to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Whenever you drink of this, remember, remember this. Remember who I am, who I was, what I taught. So as we come to this table, um, remember that this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith or you who have a little bit of faith, you who have been here often or not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because I invite you, but because Christ invites you to come and be fed, to be known, to be put back together, restored and renewed. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. As you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Now, friends, as excited as I was about this sermon, I'm maybe equally excited about the next couple of things I want to tell you, which have to do with the life of our community and our plans to, for our future. So first and foremost, I want to remind you about Good Friday. It's coming up. Um, we're going to do something we've never done before. Uh, we're going to do a, essentially a Stations of the Cross uh, in the building here. So it's going to be an indoor, socially distant, um, Stations of the Cross Good Friday meditation, meditative experience. So Scott Erickson, uh, who has actually spoken at Awaken a long, long time ago, a friend of mine, uh, made these, uh, and we've, we've put them up in the gallery before, but we're going to set them up in the building, and the building's going to be open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and so you can come in uh, at your leisure, and every four minutes there'll be a, a, a sign or a, a, a sound that will move you from one station to the next, and so you'll just make your way through uh, I think there's 11 stations in total, so it'll take a little over 40 minutes for you to do that. Um, and you can do that uh, on Good Friday here at the church. So um, I, hope to, I hope to see you. We hope to see you. Um, number two, uh, we have another learning lab that's starting, and it's starting in, it's going to be the Wednesdays in April from 6.30 to 8.30. My dear friend, Michelle, uh, Dr. Michelle Clifton Soderstrom from North Park Seminary is going to lead this for us. And it's called Pietism and Why It Matters in 20, or the, uh, the Theology and History of Pietism and Why It Matters in 2021. So um, Dr. Soder, Clifton Soderstrom is, is just brilliant. And I'm so, so excited for you guys to meet her. Um, you can sign up for that online and register for that. Um, and uh, it's going to be great. And then last but not least, holy cats, we have a plan to reopen. So um, here's the deal. Many of you on our survey, uh, a little over half of you said you were ready to meet in the building. A little less than half of you said you are not ready to meet in the building. And so in traditional or maybe predictable awakened fashion, we're trying to find a third way here. Because of that fact and also our staff um, uh, collectively 
feel like we would rather be vaccinated and uh, before we lead in-person gatherings in the building. This building has no HVAC. It has no, uh, we just have radiators. So there's a lot of things connected to that, but um, the vaccination fact for our staff, as well as a number of you just didn't feel like you were ready for it. So starting May the 9th, we have reserved the Highland Park Pavilion, which is this really, really great outdoor location right uh, up off of Jefferson and West 7th, not far from the church. So we're gonna gather outside starting May the 9th, 11 a.m. Uh, there will be registration um, to, so we can do this uh, in accordance with the state guidelines. Uh, we're gonna ask that you stay distant and, and masked while you're there. Um, and so we're, um, those are the details starting May 9th on Sundays, 11 a.m. You should also know that we're gonna continue to record the podcast and release that on Sunday mornings. So if you are not able to make it or you're not comfortable coming, that you will not miss it because we won't be recording outside. Um, we are also looking for some setup and teardown crews to help make that happen. So check the Awaken Weekly. By the time you're listening to this message, you should have already gotten something in your inboxes, um, sort of spelling this out, but we're super, super excited. I'm so excited to see your faces, oh my gosh. Oh, um, and, and when I get a vaccination, I might become a serious hugger pastor guy. <laughs> I just, I can't wait to see you. It's going to be so great. So um, if you have questions, email staff or me, and we'll, we'll, we'll walk this out um, as best we can. Um, so that's, that's it, friends. That's all we've got for you this morning. Um, God bless you. Uh, hope you have a great week. Leave with this blessing. Cue the music, Mel. Do you guys remember American Idol? They're, they're still playing American Idol. It's still happening. There's a new season on right now. And when they get to the live shows, Ryan Seacrest is always like, Kieran, dim the lights. Here we go. So that was that, that's what that was. This is all I have for you. <laughs> Just a couple chords. <laughs> dim the lights. Here we go. Thank you, Nick. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. Live. We'll see you next week live for Palm Sunday. at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.